We're diving back in to cultural lies that Christians believe. This lesson's going to be a fun one. We're going to talk about expressive individualism, the cult of authenticity, uh, our new worldview that has been foisted upon us in the past few years. So a little bit of review uh, from last time. And, and by the way, a couple of the handouts you have on the table we'll look at during the, our conversation. I also have at least one copy of the recommended reading list for anybody who didn't get that last time and, and wants to take a look at that. So a little bit of a review of last time. I, I was actually thinking, uh, Beth asked me a question uh, about the word nihilist, and it, it made me think of the word ex nihilo, right? To create out of, or out of nothing. So in the beginning, there was nothing, and God called from that nothing ex nihilo, something. God made the world, and God didn't just make a world, but he made purpose. He made telos. Wrote it on the board for you, in case you want to know how to spell it. So God called purpose and meaning out of nothingness. But atheists, when they killed God, ended up doomed to go back into the nothingness from whence God had pulled that purpose and meaning. And so atheists became Nihilists or nihilists. They became nothingists. They had nothing. That's what we talked about last time. We lost everything when we as a society lost God. But atheists and nihilism is the sort of thing that tends to drive men mad. And so that wasn't a really good place to stay. And they didn't stay there for very long. And very few people live there. So what they did instead is having unchained the earth from the sun, so to speak, they thought it was unwise to let the chain hang loose and they affixed it back to itself, and they created moral relativism. And they said, everybody, you just bring your own purpose to the party. Everybody can believe whatever they want. In the, in the moral realm, we can have any standard, any rules, and it's all acceptable. So that's where we were. The problem is that moral relativism is a very unsustainable kind of framework because people's purposes and their beliefs naturally conflict with each other, and there's no guiding principle to help us as a society navigate um, anything. We're just in chaos. That's what moral relativism is. So it was a state that really couldn't last forever. And now moral relativism is no longer the dominant philosophy of the day. There is a new dominant philosophy that has been created to provide a little bit of moral framework again, to provide a sense of purpose a sense of righteousness, a sense of sin. Of course, it's all a perversion, but there's something new on the block. And that new thing is what we're going to talk about at length today, expressive individualism. Expressive individualism. So let me start with a definition of expressive individualism that comes from the philosopher Carl Truman. Expressive individualism holds that human beings are defined by their individual psychological core and that the purpose of life is allowing that core to find social expression in relationships. Human beings are defined by their internal psychological core, and the purpose, the telos, of life is to allow that core to find social expression in relationships. So on this view, there is a sort of sin. There's a sort of universal morality Still, Now, there's still a lot of relativism in the mix, but there is a broader framework that is expressive individualism. In the words of uh, an author in the Gospel Coalition, 
For a society awash in expressive individualism, the greatest commandment is to be yourself. And the second is like to it, to affirm and applaud whatever your neighbor chooses to be. That's your purpose in life, to be yourself and to applaud whatever people around you want to be. Therefore, there are two ways to sin on this view. The first is to not be who you are on the inside, to live a lie. That's a sin in the eyes of expressive individualism. The second is to judge anything that your neighbor feels is core to who he or she or they is. That's the other great sin. So there are five claims of expressive individualism that I've identified, kind of put some things together, and I'm going to walk through those claims one at a time. That's what we're going to talk about for the next few minutes. The first claim of expressive individualism is that nothing matters to your identity but your psyche or your inner mind, right? Internal psychological core. Nothing matters to your identity but your mind. Now, I have to contrast this with the view that I would say is the Christian view, that your identity is actually defined by a lot of things. So yes, we do have a mind, an inner mind, and that's you know, who we are and we think our own thoughts. But we also have relationships that define us as, um, you know, as a father, as a son, as a brother. Uh, we have a physical reality, the fact that I live in this year, in this country. I have my status in, in various ways, my physical body, the fact that I'm in a male body. Those things all define my identity too. And I would say on the Christian, traditional Western view, we are embodied, embedded persons. So we're not just floating minds or just minds that happen to be in a randomly assigned body. We are, our identity is tied to our body as well as our, the systems of complexity and the families and so forth that we're in, right? Now, expressive individualism says this is not the case. All that matters is who you are inside your head. I can think of some examples of this uh, in our society. One that comes up actually in the field that I work in, which is sort of the broader poverty alleviation field, is person-centered language. It's kind of interesting. So person-centered language says, instead of saying that somebody is, a, is poor or a poor person, you say it's a person in poverty, person experiencing poverty, a person experiencing homelessness, as opposed to a homeless person. And the idea of this, and I'm not saying that person-centered language is inherently wrong. I'm not saying you can't use it or that I would never use it. I'm just saying that I think this is actually an example of expressive individualism because they're assuming that the person is separate from the condition. And so we need to verbally separate the person out from the condition. So you shouldn't say a slave. You should say an enslaved person. This is person-centric language. Again, I'm not going to say that's immoral, but what I'm saying is that if you use biblical language, the Bible does talk about servants and masters and slaves and poor people and the wealthy and all this sort of stuff. The Bible's not really that concerned about separating personhood from characteristics. The Bible has the assumption that, okay, maybe your identity is kind of tied into your financial status or the fact that you're a child or an elder, right? Your identity as a person isn't completely separate from these characteristics. Person-centered language says that it is. That's just an example of the inner psyche mattering the most. Can you think of any other examples in our society of inner psyche mattering and nothing else mattering to who you are? Yeah, Stephen. Oh, I was just going to comment on the pharmaceutical industry. They want 
person living with OCD is the person living with dyslexia. Like the disease of dyslexia. So that means I live with that. Yeah. Person-centered language yeah. to an extreme. Yeah, yeah. Person, person living with a migraine. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. What other examples might there be of saying that only your inner, your individual psychology matters to who you are? Well, I would see like an example. Uh, oh, well, this is still like you're a woman. Sure. It doesn't matter what your DNA, your chromosomes, or your parents, or anything else says. It's, you feel like it. That's who you are. Yeah, that's a that's a very uh, that's an example that comes easily to mind, right, in our society. So that's the first claim of expressive individualism. The second one is that our inner psyche is inherently good, right? Our inner mind is inherently good. The second claim of expressive individualism. This idea actually originates, I would say, from the Romantics. So you can think of Rousseau and a lot of the poets writing in the late 18th and early 19th century. Rousseau was a French philosopher. He's very influential uh, in a way today in a lot of our, the way our education system is structured. A lot of that came from Rousseau's original thoughts in the late 1700s. He talked about man being uh, in a state of nature, being free and innocent. And one of his quotations that I, I looked at some of his writing myself, it's very difficult to read Rousseau, um, even in English. It is, it is sufficient that I have proved that this is not by any means the original state of man. So he's done this big hypothetical about man existing outside of society. He's like, I'm not saying that this is necessarily where man came from, but it is merely the spirit of the society and the inequality which society produces that thus transform and alter all our natural inclinations. So he said, naturally we're good, but we get messed up by society. That's what Rousseau taught. Um, the Romantics, though, they, most of them were deists, so they believed in God in a sense. They believed that God kind of started the universe and then left it alone. So they thought that our inner sense of morality ultimately came from God. They had a little bit of a foundation for it. And then what kinds of things corrupt our inner sense of morality? We'll go back to Rousseau again. He gives the example of property. Property corrupts us as, as pure humans. And he says, the first man who having enclosed a piece of ground, bethought himself of saying, this is mine, and found people simple enough to believe him, was the real founder of civil society. From how many crimes, wars, and murders, from how many horrors and misfortunes might not anyone have saved mankind by pulling up the stakes or filling up the ditch and crying to his fellows, beware of listening to this imposter. You are undone if you at once forget that the fruits of the earth belong to us all and the earth itself to nobody. So Rousseau is saying that things like private property is what has corrupted mankind. But if we could get rid of all those bad institutions, then man would go back to be pure and good. Interestingly, like I said, Rousseau wrote a lot that influenced modern education. And he did have some experience himself as a father. Rousseau abandoned five children to an orphanage, one at a time, over the course of his life. So that's a common trend with a lot of these brilliant thinkers that brought us our modern society. They were all terrible people. If you check out my reading list, I talk about the book Intellectuals by, um, I think it's Paul Johnson. And he just goes through the life of a, a dozen or so of these famous intellectuals, starting with Rousseau and moving into the modern era, people like Karl Marx. And he's like, let's just look at who they were as people. Were, were, they, were they people that you would have wanted as your friends or your 
your uh, brother or, or anyone in your life? And the answer is no. They were all really awful people. So Rousseau gave us that. And I think this is just a basic assumption in our society. So we say you are your inner psyche, and then we assume your inner psyche is good. Uh, can you think of any examples in, in our culture, in your experience, where there's just an assumption that people are basically good on the inside if you get deep enough down? Or have you met people that you would say, yeah, they definitely believe that? How might they frame it? I don't know if you'd say this is deep, deep enough down, but yeah. uh, Molly, Kate, and Grayson are regularly told to just follow their heart. Mm -hmm. And the assumption is if you follow your heart, that will end well because your heart is good, right? Yeah, that's a great example. Um, <clears throat> as I was studying through some of this, I, I just became a little more aware of my surroundings, and I was walking through Target, and I saw a Disney princess t-shirt. I have a, a, a version of it on, on the paper in front of you that says, kindness comes from within. Just a basic assumption that if you want kindness, you have to look inside yourself to find it. So it's not a Christian assumption. A Christian assumption is that kindness comes from above. Very different thing. But this is a basic assumption our world has. So this idea is very alive and well. And I think right on that point of following your heart, there is this phenomenon that I, I refer to as dream-based morality, right? So whatever your dreams are, that is what is moral. You should follow your dreams. I like to look at children's pop culture because a lot of times that's, uh, that's where the philosophy is explained in most direct terms. It's, it's layered too deep in a lot of adult pop culture. But in children's pop culture, it's just right out there in the open. So if you watch a film like any one of the Muppets movies, you know, at very... Uh, you know, not very far out there, cutting edge, avant-garde kind of culture. That's just basic pop culture, right? And a standard Muppet movie plot line is the Muppets want to follow their dreams, usually for fame and fortune, and they're being opposed by some evil business person who, interestingly, is also following his dreams to be super rich at their expense. So you have a clash of dreams, but there's just... This sort of assumption that the fame and fortune dreams of actors are morally superior to the money-grubbing dreams of business people, why is that the case? Well, it's because the people who make the Muppets are actors. And if business people made movies, then actors would be the narcissistic villains and business people would be the heroes, right? So there's a natural conflict of dreams, but there's, there's just sort of an assumption that there is, that, that the, the true dreams are moral and, and the assumption is made in those films that the business people aren't really in touch with their true hearts because what they're doing is kind of nasty. And so if they were really looked deep enough inside themselves, they would find more kindness because kindness comes from within, as we all know. So that, that's a basic assumption. Uh, another just little example of kids' pop culture, uh, a song that has gotten stuck in my head a time or two. I don't know if anyone knows the film Moana. The Disney film, right? So there's a villain in Moana named Tamatoa, who's a crab, he's a bad crab. And Tamatoa sings a, his little song and dance routine where he's up against Moana, the protagonist. I'm not going to sing it, but I'll give you a dramatic interpretation because that's the next best thing, right? So a couple lines from this, the song Shiny. Well, Tamatoa hasn't always been this glam. I was a drab little crab once. 
Now I know I can be happy as a clam because I'm beautiful, baby. Did your granny say, listen to your heart? Be who you are on the inside? I need three words to tear her argument apart. Your granny lied. I'd rather be shiny. It's Tomatoa. Okay, so it's kind of nutty, but what's going on there? We have a, a crab. He wants, to be, he wants to have gold and treasure and stuff, right? And he is challenging Moana, and he's saying, Moana, your, your granny told you, be who you are on the inside, listen to your heart. And so Disney is saying, that's, that's the true virtue. That's what you should be. This evil crab, he's not doing that. But again, we have this, this strange sort of tension between their dreams here. Because Tomatoa, he, he just wants to be shiny. But Disney is assuming that deep down inside, if Tomatoa got underneath that, then he would have something better that he wanted, right? There's this kind of weird tension there. But ultimately, it might be the case that deep down at Tomatoa's core, he, he really just wants to be shiny. And, and that's all there is to it, right? So who, who's to say that our dreams are always going to lead us to a good place? Well, expressive individualism assumes it. It assumes that if you get deep enough in your inner core, you will be good. Good by what standard? Well, not really, because notice they're judging Tamatoa for not being good by some objective standard. They're judging the business people in the Muppets who want to tear down the Muppet Theater, right? So really, at their core, they're looking at a Christian standard of morality, and they're saying deep, deep, deep down inside ourselves, if we look inside enough, we'll eventually all kind of be like Jesus. <laughs> That's the assumption of expressive individualism. It's, it's kind of a nutty assumption. But... Our culture has been like a boat unmoored from the dock, but the boat was recently unmoored. So it hasn't actually drifted that far out to sea. And, and we could argue that people have consciences that God put there too. Um, and that, that also is why maybe deep down inside we still kind of agree on, on what good is. Okay, so that's the second thing. Our inner psyche is inherently good, ironically good by a Christian standard. That is what expressive individualism believes. The third thing, this one is a little surprising. Your inner psyche is fundamentally sexual. This is a belief of expressive individualism. Your inner psyche, your inner mind is fundamentally sexual. Your deepest desires have to do with your sexuality. In Joplin recently, saw somebody drive by with a gay and proud bumper sticker, right? Now, there are some bumper stickers that I might put on my car. Maybe veteran or Eagle Scout, or Jesus follower. I would never put heterosexual and proud. <laughs> I just don't think of that as that foundational to my identity, right? Does any of you, do any of you have a bumper sticker like that? Okay. So, but in the world of expressive individualism, sexuality is who you are in your deepest nature. Your deepest desires are sexual. That's their belief. Where did this idea come from? Interesting. Sigmund Freud, actually. Sigmund Freud was the founder of modern psychology, was around in the early, uh, early 1900s. Everybody agrees that everything Sigmund Freud believed was nutty and wrong. Um, and I say everybody, I mean all mainstream psychologists, secular, Christian. And everybody's like, yeah, Freud, Freud was nutty and wrong. But he believed that people were fundamentally sexual. There was a problem, though, with this belief when Freud 
uh, came up with this in his head. The problem is that it's kind of like saying humans are defined by their core identity as having underarm hair. The problem with that is children don't have underarm hair and you can't say children aren't human. So if you're going to say that people are fundamentally sexual and that's really what drives people's core identity, you have to say children are sexual beings, even though observationally they're not. So this is why Freud came up with his whole psychosexual stages of children, which again is super weird and everyone believes it's wrong. He had no evidence for it at the time and it has been soundly debunked since. But he basically imagined that there are different age ranges in which children have different sexual fascinations. Um, weird dude. But the bottom line is he built into psychology the idea that people were sexual from birth and this was eventually fused in the 1960s with the New Left with Karl Marx. We'll talk about that fusion later. But you had this really interesting fusion of Freudian psychology and Marxian understanding of economic classes in the world. That's for another lesson. But point is, sexuality is not just an ancillary characteristic on expressive individualism view. It is absolutely foundational to who a person is. This is why there feels like there's a little bit of inconsistency with some of the stuff that you can choose about yourself and some of the stuff that you can't choose about yourself currently in our culture. So right now, it is acceptable to choose your pronouns because gender is, is tied to sexuality. And you can have pretty nutty pronouns. You can have pronouns like bee and fairy. Right? That's, that's a real set of pronouns. Um, but you still can't choose your adjectives. We haven't gotten there yet. Uh, you can't just be... Uh, dashing and clever Scott. And whenever somebody refers to you, they have to call you dashing and clever Scott, right? So we don't allow adjective choosing yet, although expressive individualism doesn't have any natural reason why we wouldn't allow people to choose their adjectives, except for this belief that your inner psychology is more sexual um, than anything else. This is also the, the current constraint on things like when a Swedish man tried to get his age changed in a court, 60 years old, try to get his age changed legally to 39, because he said, I'd rather be 39. <laughs> the judge actually did turn it down. In the long run, there's no logical reason why you should be able to change your gender and not your age or your race or some other characteristic, especially when you look at race, which is significantly less genetic and binary than gender is, right? I mean, race obviously runs along a very broad spectrum. Gender does not contrary to popular belief. <laughs> um, so I would make the prediction that down the road, expressive individualism will continue to expand more and more into these categories outside of sexuality. And you'll see a lot more within sexuality, multi-partner marriages, people identifying as animals more and more, normalization of pedophilia, cannibalism, people changing their age and race, people changing their century. I think that's, that's, that's coming at some point. Um, I mentioned pedophilia. So the only constraint on sexuality, according to expressive individualism, is consent. Okay, consent constrains our, our sexual actions. That's completely arbitrary. And that is just a relic of Christianity. And it actually is not very logical, because if anybody here has ever raised small children, you know that you do a lot of things to small children that they don't consent to. That is called parenting a small child, right? So the idea that consent is this universal, moral, nobody would ever argue that consent is not required in all things, it's actually not. But it's sort of a relic of Christianity that's currently constraining our culture. 
though I don't suspect that it will for very long. Neither does, does Carl Truman. So there we have it, the third claim of expressive individualism. Let's go on to the fourth. Fourth is that the purpose of life is to express ourselves in relationships with others. Purpose of life, the telos, is to express ourselves in relationships with others. You could also say to be authentic. Expressive individualism isn't just about being someone inside your own head. It's also about making sure you express who you are inside your own head. There's a, I, I found another, another quotation I thought was good. Expressive individualism's view is that the whole point of a person's existence is to be authentic. For that individuals to be authentic, they must align their lives with their deepest desires. And that for societies to be authentic, they must applaud individuals for aligning life with their deepest desires. Uh, another quotation by a, a conservative philosopher, Charles Taylor, the culture of authenticity is one where each of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity, and that is, it is important to find and live out one's own rather than surrendering to conformity with the model imposed on us from the outside by society or the previous generation or religious or political authority. So our culture holds expressing yourself in very, very high regard. What evidences can you think of that, that authenticity, is key in our modern society. The way people dress. Yeah, that's, uh, unpack that a little bit. So we have, we have uh, you know, gender cross-dressing. Um, I would say even, I'd say that's good. On top of that too, maybe the way we think about fashion. Right, so there would probably be a time in a less expressive society where we would be more concerned with blending in, right? Well, certainly, a, I you know, spent a little while living in Morocco. People blend in, that's what they do. They wear what everyone else is wearing. In our culture, especially at the fringes, people try to wear the strangest thing, the most brightly colored thing, the thing that is turning heads the most. Um, it's, it's kind of uh, the face tattoo phenomenon right, where somebody gets a face tattoo so you stare at them so people will notice them and then you look at them and they're like, why are you looking at me, bro? Because <laughs> you have a face tattoo, right? <laughs> so, yeah, that, that's, some, that's the way fashion is. Yeah, so that's good. So well, what other evidences uh, are there that people really just want to be authentic and express that? Yeah, Laura. Instagram stories. You know, you want to like drop in on somebody's house, but not really drop in because they've really been staging this whole thing. Mm -hmm. But, you know, they're making their coffee and they're having a conversation with you, and it seems like that's their real life, but really yeah. their kids aren't even home, or, you know. So that's, that's what's so interesting. It's a very staged authenticity. And I follow somebody that she says, like, sometimes she, she says it, but not very often. She says, I don't have sound in my stories, but this might be the real life. But her whole Instagram is about just the you know, but she doesn't have sound because the kids are sad. <laughs> Inauthentic authenticity. Yeah. And I used to, I used to see a lot of stories or Facebook things about look at look at my beautiful dinner I snacked whatever, and then I started noticing it's like guys, don't be fooled by my perfect whatever. Look, 
I have dirty dishes two inches away. And that's the authentic that I've started to. Isn't that really interesting? So social media for like, uh, like five years was used just to show that your life was perfect. And then very quickly, you show that your life is perfect, but then you also show that it's imperfect, but in a staged way. You don't show anything that's really revealing. You just show dirty dishes. And then you get bonus points for showing your authenticity. And that be real app, that's what I'm saying. I'm like, the college students showed us that, and it's like, you're supposed to take a picture of what is actually going on. But like you said, you still wouldn't like show a picture of you know, something that you didn't want someone to see. Right. And interestingly, a lot of the intellectuals, the sort of left-leaning intellectuals that Paul Johnson writes about in his book, they would write these big tell-all books where they would say, I'm, I'm telling you all my darkest secrets because I'm not afraid. But then when historians go back through and look at their darkest secrets, they kept all the actual dark stuff out. You know, they tell a few sordid stories, but really it's a very tailored tell-all, right? Um, uh, Reality TV, yeah. Why would, why would reality TV be interesting to someone uh, unless the idea is that these people are more real than actors in some way? Now, of course, reality TV can be kind of staged and fake too, right? But we are attracted to it because it feels authentic. I was watching a documentary about uh, the rise of YouTube, which roughly 10 years ago did not exist, believe it or not. And the founders said, oh, I think the the explosion of YouTube was driven by authenticity because people were just posting these very genuine videos about their life or some funny thing that a kid did or whatever. And that authenticity fueled the rise of YouTube. I, there are just all kinds of these things in, in the culture. Has anybody ever seen a Mint Mobile ad with Ryan Reynolds? Yeah. On my phone all the time. Yeah, they pop up, the YouTube thinks that this is really what I need. So I think they pop up for me all the time. The whole, the whole joke is Ryan Reynolds is, of course, uh, an actor who now owns this Mint Mobile uh, cell phone company, is that the commercials are really cheap. And so Ryan, Ryan Reynolds is like in front of a cardboard backdrop, and he's like, we filmed this really cheap commercial, so it saves you money. But it's funny because it at least appears to be very low budget and authentic, right? Um, I think, interestingly, profanity has become more and more common because people feel like it's very authentic. We like to hear it from our politicians. We didn't used to like to hear it from our politicians. Now they still swore 50 years ago, but they tended to keep it to themselves. Now they swear in their speeches and it's, it's more authentic. Um, the the F-bomb adorns the, the, the cover of many books these days. Uh, it's like a common book title insert, right? And so that I think that's a sort of appeal to authenticity. Flaws become virtues. Can you think of any examples of that? People like to talk about their flaws, or at least a curated version of them. Well, somebody said, wait. Yeah, body positivity. I mean, which, you know, I'm, I'm not saying there's no truth to that, but yeah, there's a lot of um, authenticity sort of stuff there. What else? Did you say something? Mental illness. That's the other one. It's become cool. Uh, I, I heard some... Uh, some guys say uh, back in the 70s, it was all the rage for people to have allergies. And they like to talk about what allergies they have. Today, the kids like to talk about what mental illness they have, right? Um, talking about both of those, and, and both of those in kind of a curated way. I, I heard a comedian joke that body positivity always stops at the face. It never, all the, all the models that they use for body positivity, <laughs> right? 
<laughs> so, so, yeah, it really is the case. We talk about our flaws in our society, but not necessarily in a, in a, in a very genuine way. Um, and I, as I was looking up some stuff for this, I had a BetterHelp online therapy ad pop up, and it said, do you ever feel like no one knows who you really are? And if they did, they would completely reject you? What an expressive individualist advertisement. Interestingly, I should caveat that I talk about culture and I'm talking about America and the West. It's worth keeping in mind that there are other countries and there are other cultures. When you dig into psychology of people in the Eastern world, Koreans care way, way less about authenticity. They care far more, at least in Korea, about appropriateness. And so it is expected that a child will behave differently with elders or teachers or, or parents than with his friends. You almost have split personalities by the context that you're in. That's considered appropriate. There are kind of ways to measure that that's actually happening. Whereas in America, we feel that's disingenuous. Um, and I mean, another one just pops in the head. It's just sort of the breaking down of titles and authority. Right? We don't tend to use Mr. and Dr., and, and so forth, like we, we would have in a previous era. So there's this sort of leveling based on the fact that we're all authentic people. Which is the whole point of the movie Turning Red. America's better. Yeah. Because this Asian culture that this kid grew up in is just so terrible and repressing her inner panda. And she's got to become panda. And so good job, America. Which ironically is a sort of cultural imperialism that the left in theory is opposed to. But expressive individualism is a universal morality to, um, to our, our Western culture anyways. Okay. I actually have a song lyrics out on the table. I don't quite have a copy for everyone, but you can sort of pass them around. So I was just looking this up. I was watching the movie Avatar, the original one, and I saw a lot of expressive individualism sort of references in it. And I, I did a little digging, and I found this is actually the theme song the credit song in the original Avatar, best-selling movie of all time. Take a minute, just look through it, maybe underline, maybe, uh, and think about some references to expressive individualism and some of the claims that, that we've talked about. So we've, we've covered so far four claims of expressive individualism, and we've given you the definition. Do you see any of that in here? Maybe somebody can say, oh, here's a line that seems kind of like one of these claims. How I live through you and you through me. I live through you and you through me. So I find my purpose through you recognizing me, and you find your purpose through me recognizing you. It's kind of like a terrible ecosystem where you just have creatures that eat each other, <laughs> right? As opposed to some ultimate source of nourishment like the sun, you know, or, or God maybe giving us purpose. We just live through each other. <laughs> what else? Yeah, that's a great one. 
I see me through your eyes. I understand myself by understanding the way you understand myself, which is why it's really important that you understand myself the way I understand myself, or I don't exist. Interesting. Teach me how to see all that's beautiful. So the idea is that I can't experience the world and goodness without another person kind of causing me to experience it. I think just the title of the song, I See You, which is a line, it's a catchphrase in the Avatar movie. It's just, I recognize you. I'm giving you purpose by recognizing you. And then I, the last line that stuck out to me was, I live through your love, the very end. I live, I find my purpose in, I live because of your love for me. Okay. You know, Nathan, one of the yeah. things, as you're, as you're saying all of this, it's becoming obvious to me why our culture has such a visceral response to people who say, we're not going to play this game. Yeah. It, but when we go, no, no I'm not going to acknowledge you in, in those terms. The, the culture, or our, our culture goes, you must be taken out. And that is point five. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's good. That's good. It, it all flows. Um, yeah, there's a, a thought. Yeah. Mm, codependency. Yeah. Yeah, so point five. Yeah. You are your beliefs. So an attack on your beliefs is an attack on you. You are your beliefs. So an attack on your beliefs is an attack on you. Um, another way to... Yeah, you're not your body, but you are your beliefs. You're right. Um, another way to say that is a disagreement with your chosen identity is a rejection of your humanity. A disagreement with your chosen identity is a rejection of your humanity. This is a core belief of expressive individualism. Um, so, yeah. It's a sad way to live because we have given or at least acknowledged that power in the hands of an almighty God who's very stable and, and hasn't, it doesn't change from age to age. But the culture has given that power to everyone around them. They've democratized their purpose. Kind of dangerous move. Oh, another, uh, just one more thought about an example of authenticity uh, is, is our value of, before we dig into this point five, is our value of courage, our value of people speaking what they believe, regardless of the truth value of what they believe, just the fact that they're speaking what they believe. This is on the right as well as on the left. We look at our politicians and we're like, that one says what he thinks. We don't necessarily assess whether what he thinks makes any sense, um, but as long as he says what he thinks, that is something that we value very highly. So that's another example of authenticity. Okay, let's. 
because it's like I, I could say something that's very culturally relevant and everyone's like, yeah, you did a good job. And if I say something against that, they're like, what do you mean? Right, because there is a universal moral standard. So you have a lot of leeway in our culture to believe a lot of things, but you can't break the rules of expressive individualism. Those are ironclad. Those are written on uh, golden tablets. So let's dig a little more into this. Um, you are your beliefs. An attack on your beliefs is an attack on you. <clears throat> Therefore, love the sinner, hate the sin is no longer possible. The sinner identifies so strongly with the sin that to reject the sin is, at least in his eyes, to reject the sinner. If you tell a man he isn't a woman or a child, he isn't a cat, you have rejected their right to exist. Don't take it from me. Take it from the authoritative source, pronouns.org. Let's read this. <clears throat> Using someone's correct personal pronouns is a way to respect them and create an inclusive environment, just as using a person's name can be a way to respect them. Just as it can be offensive or even harassing to make up a nickname for someone and call them that nickname against their will, can be offensive or harassing to guess at someone's pronouns and to refer to them using those pronouns if that is not how the person wants to be known. Or worse, actively choosing to ignore the pronouns someone has stated they go by could imply the oppressive notion that intersects transgender, non-binary, and gender, gender non-conforming people do not or should not exist. So if you don't use someone's pronouns, then you're saying they do not or should not exist on the view of the authoritative source, pronouns.org. Uh, and it goes even a step beyond that. In an, in an op-ed written in the Daily Californian, Someone said, asking people to maintain peaceful dialogue with those who legitimately do not think their lives matter is a violent act. So asking, if I don't use Stephen's preferred pronouns on this view, I don't think that he exists, and asking him to be peaceful in regards to me is violent. So speech, or abusive speech at least, is now violence. And so we've escalated from disagreement to rejecting your existence to I'm attacking you, and now you have a right to physically attack me back. That is where that path has led us in very, very short order. And that is why, as Scott said, you must bake the cake. You must be forced to celebrate. Because if you do not celebrate who people think they are, you are denying them who they are on the inside. You prevent them from having a purpose. You deny them telos. You are evil, and you must be stopped by any means necessary. That is the view of expressive individualism. And I would say that this does go beyond just uh, gender identity and sexuality. I think this is also starting to seep into our political discourse. So in logic, there's, uh, there are suppositions, there are things that you suppose to be true. But then underneath those suppositions are what's called presuppositions. A presupposition is something so foundational to what you believe that you can't even defend it. It's just a core assumption. So for instance, uh, I might have the core assumption that logic is real, or that my mind is capable of using logic and thinking clearly, or that my senses work, and so the world I see around me is not an illusion. These are just core, foundational, I have written up here, presuppositions. 
Okay? In apologetics, in some schools of apologetic thought, people will say, well, your belief that um, the Bible is true is actually presupposition. You can, you can debate whether that's a higher level or a presupposition. But anyways, there are a lot of really core beliefs. Now, because expressive individualism has merged our identity with our beliefs, what we have is a culture that shares fewer and fewer core beliefs, and every one of our higher level beliefs we pull down into being a part of our identity. And again, I think this happens on the political right as well as the left. Everything I believe is now core to who I am. There's no more debate or discussion to be had because we don't have common ground that we can then debate the particulars of. We just have, each one of us has a set of beliefs. Those beliefs are so foundational to who we are that if you disagree with me, I am extremely angry. I cannot control myself because you have attacked me. Again, important to keep in mind, this is on the political right. It's not just on the political left. The idea that everything we believe is now foundational to who we are. So those are the five claims of expressive individualism. Let's talk for just a minute about um, obstacles to expressive individualism. Okay, so in our culture and historically, there are things that prevent people from being whoever they want to be on the inside. There's a lot of things that prevent people from being whoever they want to be, right? Um, if I want to be, a, if I want to be uh, Marie Antoinette, and, and just that's who I am. And there's a lot of things preventing me from being that. So what are some examples of obstacles that undermine people's ability to express who they are on the inside? Locker rooms, so constructs of gender and physical space, right? So that's on gender, right? The law. The law, yeah. Any, any kind of rules can prevent people from being who they are on the inside. Karen Carpenter's a famous singer who died of anorexia, and if you're, she is telling you, I'm fat, I can't eat anymore because I'm fat, I'm trying to lose weight. And you see a skeleton person, and you say, yeah, you're fat. You need to, you're, you're almost doing damage to that person by saying this truth. Yeah. But another thing, like some of these pronouns or whatever, I, I don't know. It, no, there, it's you, selective. You're right, it is selective, and that's why I threw in that fourth point that, um, it, well, maybe it's the third, actually, but that they think sexuality is more core to who you are than your body. So it's selective and it kind of tilted in that direction. But you're right. Anorexia is a really good counterexample of where somebody says, I'm fat, but actually they're obviously undernourished and we're allowed to tell them that. So that's a good counterexample to bring up to people who have this worldview. Yeah, Stephen. Yeah. You're not an alcoholic. Um, yeah. Right. So, so an obstacle then to, to them being whoever they want to be, it, it's sort of reality and the fact that those, you know, that ethyl alcohol will, will kill you in the end, uh, even though you don't want it to and, and you, you, want it, you want to coexist with it, but it's, it's just not good for you. So a few things that come to mind uh, that are uh, undermine people's ability to be who they are on the inside. Well, one, allow me to quote from uh, a blog post on thebigselfschool.com, how to live in your truth. Okay. Uh, this is where we arrive at the major obstacle to living in your truth. 
social conditioning. When your external environment ignores or discourages who you are deep down, being true to yourself is hard. So, uh, age and experience is an obstacle to living in your truth, right? That's why we value youth as a culture, because the young, and this started with Rousseau, are uncorrupted by society. And whatever they want is somehow more pure. And once they're older and experienced, they've just been corrupted by society. So uh, we value youth over age. Tradition, any tradition, that's, we don't like any of it because it all stands in the way of being who you are on the inside. So all received wisdom, all culture, all civilization, uh, military and public service, all of these things prevent you from being who you are on the inside. Religion and moral truth claims stand in the way of being who you are on the inside. Hierarchy and authority. We're going to have a whole lesson about that. Hierarchy, just, it just grates against expressive individualism. The idea that there might be some people who are in charge of other people, whether that's in work, whether that's in a church body, whether that's in a family, hierarchy and authority really rubs expressive individualism the wrong way. Family itself, monogamous marriage, the, you know, the fact that children are born and then you kind of have to do work to keep them alive, whether you feel like it or not, right? That, that keeps you from being who you really want to be. Uh, responsibility to your extended family, maybe aging parents or uh, you know, a, somebody with some kind of disability or making bad life choices. Physical world, of course, your body isn't, is an obstacle to who you want to be on the inside. And ultimately, freedom of expression and freedom of thought is an obstacle to expressive individualism. Because if somebody is not forced to affirm you, then you can't exist and you don't have purpose. So freedom, living in a liberal society in, in the sort of classical sense of the word, is an obstacle to expressive individualism as well. So I have uh, some images. I didn't print a whole bunch of them, but you can pass those around. What are some examples of expressive individualism in the quotations that you find there? By the way, the first image came from um, a calendar I took a picture of at Walmart in Joplin, Missouri. The journal was from Kohl's in Joplin, Missouri. It was on clearance. Um, and the shirt, as I mentioned, was uh, from Target in Joplin, Missouri. So this is not some big coastal cities thing. This is everywhere. Yeah, just, just you read, as you see some slogans, just, just read some of them off. I'm kind of awesome. <laughs> Follow your inner wisdom. That's point two, that your inner psyche is good and you can trust it. Doing my best is always enough. Somebody's just got to read that journal cover off. It's, it's, uh, it's good. And isn't that interesting how that is expressive individualism that acknowledges nihilism, that acknowledges that we have no purpose unless we quick give it to ourselves now. Yeah. I'm not sure what's wrong, but uh, I look for things to appreciate and feel Well, yeah, and I think if you're grateful to other people and grateful to God, that's great, but... You can see this is sort of an example of to the pure, all things are pure, right? But when you're coming from this worldview, you're grateful pretty much to yourself 
for everything. <laughs> yeah, Krista. Yeah. Paul? My kind goes with her. So how do you witness to somebody that's in this state of mind? Um, I have a little bit of that at the end, but the, okay. the answer I would give to that is, how's it working out for you? <laughs> really? Because they've thrown off all the shackles of received wisdom so that they have no constraints and one optimizing purpose to make themselves happy. Therefore, we should live in the happiest society of all time. But we don't. And when people get off their highly tailored, semi-authentic Instagram stories, they know they're not happy. And I think you can use that fact, um, and we'll unpack a little bit more, but I think you can use that fact as the core apologetic here. Well, they don't have to be honest with you. They ultimately have to be, you have to give them something to think about. And in the end, they might be honest with themselves. So that is, ladies and gentlemen, the lie portion of this lesson. I have unpacked the lie for you. Now we're going to get into the truth. Let's start with this. Expressive individualism, I would say, is a perversion of a Christian virtue. What virtue is it a perversion of? You can guess, it's fine. Love. Here's why I would say that. Expressive individualism says you must want for other people what they want for themselves. The definition of love is to will the good of the other, or in other words, to want for other people good. Good by what standard? Good by a universal moral standard. I want what's good for you in God's book. That's love. I want what you want for you is expressive individualism. It's, sound, it's, very, it's parallel. It's very similar, but it is a perversion of the Christian virtue of love. That's, of course, why you hear love thrown out so often when people use their expressive individualism worldview and they talk about their catchphrases and stuff. Yeah, Phil. Is it true that... Most of the lies that are powerful are based on the truth. Yeah. I, mean, I was just looking at, let, I let my light shine. Whatever. That's right out of the Bible. Right out of the Bible. Yeah. But it's twisted in the meaning. Yeah. But it still carries that underlying power of, you know there's something right about it. Mm-hmm. But, and it's, you know, yeah, you will become one. This little light of mine, that's a light that God gave us. But in expressive individualism, it's, it's just our inner psyche being naturally good. So let's break down those uh, five claims again and I'll respond to them with a little bit of truth. In response to the claim that nothing matters but your inner psyche, I would say that people do have a psychological core. 
That is obviously true. We have minds. Actually, Christian thought was the first to unpack this. When the Apostle Paul writes about an inward mental struggle, that's really anomalous in ancient writings. Ancient writers don't write about inward mental struggles, right? Paul writes about that. So we have an individual psychological core. Actually, St. Augustine as well in his Confessions really unpacks the inner struggle of mankind. However, as I've already said, we're not just minds that are driving around in our bodies like they're cars that we were assigned at birth, right? We are embodied, embedded persons. Our body is a part of our identity. It's, of course, not our whole identity, but it is a part of it. And all of these elements are, of course, corrupted by sin. And so we know that our bodies will die, but the resurrection is physical because God recognizes that our body is a part of who we are, right? So he's got a plan to redeem all of who we are, not just our minds to float around on some clouds, right? Um, also, you're not your thoughts. Thank God. <laughs> your identity is not merely the sum of every strange thought that has ever gone through your mind, right? Your identity is more complex than that. As a Christian, your identity is, is grounded in Christ. And so we're not just our inner psyche. We are more than that on the Christian worldview. In response to the second claim that our inner psyche is inherently good, of course, uh, Pastor Scott preached a whole sermon on this this past Sunday. Our nature is corrupt, requires redemption. A word of wisdom for you. Don't be yourself. You're awful. <laughs> That's that's that on <laughs> that's that's the whole point. God has to redeem us. Now, if we want to get a little deeper into the weeds, it's not so much our humanity that's bad; it's that sin has corrupted the good humanity that God created. So there is a lot of good inside of us that God put there, even for sinners. There's good there, but it's been corrupted and must be redeemed. In response to the claim that your inner psyche is fundamentally sexual. And that is, of course, incorrect. And, of course, children aren't sexual, so that's, that's not actually true. But I would say that it is a perversion of a truth that our nature is fundamentally relational. It is not good for man to be alone. But most of our relationships, actually all but one of our relationships, should not be sexual in nature, <laughs> right? But we are to be relational. That is foundational. But Relationships are not just for our self-fulfillment. I don't just live through you and you through me. The relationships are not just to make me happy. They are to make me holy. And that has been said of marriage, and, and, and very rightly so, but it's also true of all of our relationships. Our relationships are there to make us uh, transform to the image of Christ. The, third, or the, the fourth one is that purpose of life is to express ourselves in relationships. And, of course, the answer to that is purpose of life is to become less like yourself and more like Jesus. That is the actual purpose of life. I loved uh, Pastor Scott's story of Duke Reinhold, the man who was trapped by his own appetites in a room that if he had stopped eating so much, he could have gotten out of. That's the point. Our appetites, our inner desires are not liberating us. They're holding us captive. And God offers to free us from them so that we are free to live in our actual purpose, our actual telos, in relationship with others, and bringing glory to God. And the last is that you're, you are your beliefs. So an attack on your beliefs is an attack on, on you. The answer to that is that beliefs are not identity. 
You can reject somebody's belief and still will their good, but you're willing their good in line with a universal moral standard of good that is not subjective and not just tied to them. People's dignity, thank God, doesn't come from you recognizing them. It comes from the fact that they are image bearers. They are created imago Dei. That's where their dignity comes from. Because on the view, this twisted view of expressive individualism, it's like, well, if the Nazis don't value the Jews, then the Jews don't have value. And then you can kill them because they don't have value because you didn't give it to them. It's a messed up worldview. They don't want to go there. But you have value that's inherent to you, whether people acknowledge that dignity in you or not. You have intrinsic dignity, not just dignity that people give you. So I have a few Bible verses here, but I'll just throw this out to the room first. What does the Bible say about this? Any of the topics we've covered, can you think of any Bible verses where God addresses some of these ideas? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the verse I have, um, kind of similar to that, Galatians 5.17, For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. Yeah, great one. What else? Yeah, there is an absolute sin beyond just living a lie, right? There, there are actual sins out there that you must repent from. And God was not happy with that state of affairs, and pretty shortly, neither were they. That's always how that ended up. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him authority and he will make your path straight. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Yeah, Romans 3. Uh, kind of to what you were saying about repent, I, I have Luke 9, 23. Then he, Jesus, said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will save it. I also have James 1, 4, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So we've got some wickedness down inside of us. Deep inside, maybe we all just do want to be shiny, but we need to get that fixed. And interestingly, Jesus himself, uh, although he did not, he was not a sinner, he prayed in the garden, Luke 22, 40, 42, not my will, but yours be done. So even though Jesus was not a sinner, he still subjected his will to the will of the Father. That is something that he expected us to model as well. So, that's the truth. What does this look like in the church? Question to you. Expressive individualism, all the beliefs that we've talked about. Um, and I'll give you another quote from the Gospel Coalition. For a society awash 
in expressive individualism, the greatest commandment is to be yourself. The second is like to it, to affirm and applaud whatever your neighbor chooses to be. What does that look like in the church? What are examples of that? Yeah, so trying to relitigate things that are very, very, very clear in Scripture because people feel a different way, and our worldview tells us that feelings are things you can't argue with, right? So yeah, the fact that we're even discussing that in the church is expressive individualism creeping in. Well, I think that's a, it's a touch out of context, but uh, Kevin DeYoung has, has a really good article called From uh, Silence to Complexification to Capitulation. And so he talks about how a lot of famous evangelical leaders have sort of followed this path where they don't talk about it, and then they make it seem really complex sexual issues, and then they capitulate and change their mind. And I would say, at least what I saw, Andy Standy is, is like at the complexification stage but Kevin DeYoung pointed out that he had never seen someone turn around and go the other direction. Once they got on that path, they always ended up capitulating on the issue at the end of it. So and many of those pastors had kids that are in that lifestyle. Yeah. Maybe there's a perverted grace. So we talk about grace and truth. So if we don't, the truth is we deserve hell. That's the truth. So if we don't know the truth, we don't understand. We think we can just keep off of Jesus Christ. We just overlook the reality. The church did it so many times. It's just so many people disappeared just because we want to hold it in grace. Yeah. We think we're doing a favor. Maybe that makes us feel good because we're doing a favor. We yeah. We ignore the truth. Trying to attract people to the church and make them feel more comfortable to come here rather than going out where they trying to kind of change what the church is to be less threatening to who they are on the inside. Yeah. So there's a really good article in the Gospel Coalition. I'll recommend it to you. Um, I'll read a bit of it. It's called What Expressive Individualism Does to Sin by Trevin Wax. So some research from Barna shows that uh, 66% of church-going Christians say enjoying yourself is the highest goal of life. Now, that's a little lower than 84% of Americans in general, but it is still very high for a lot of churches who um, say that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, but what expressive individualism says instead is that the chief end of religion is to glorify man so that he can enjoy himself forever, right? Now, what does this mean practically in your church? It's very possible to have multiple people attending a Bible-believing church and understand what's being said in different ways. So imagine this, and this is in the article. Imagine a woman standing during worship, singing to the Lord, hopeful and anxious to fulfill her purpose as someone made in God's image, redeemed by Jesus' sacrifice. Her frame of reference is biblical. God is at the center. Next to her stands a man who sees this worship service as helping him fulfill his own personal mission to enjoy himself as much as possible in this life, 
by being the best version of himself that he can be. His frame of reference is moralistic. Beside them is a teenage girl who sees the worship service as absolving her of negative feelings and pointing her towards a higher calling. Her frame of reference is therapeutic. The churchgoers sing the same songs and hear the same sermons, but the reasons they are in church diverge significantly. To the moralistic man, the purpose of life is to be a good person. I will be happier if I feel like I'm righteous. The church makes me a better person, able and willing to do the right thing, and therefore makes me feel good inside. The teenager sees the church, the purpose of church like this. The purpose of life is to <clears throat> feel happy, and I will feel happier if I can escape bad feelings of guilt and shame. The church helps me feel good about myself by putting me in touch with a higher destiny and empowering me to chase my dreams. <clears throat> so, we can imagine the situation where we have multiple people in church listening to the same songs, maybe uh, appreciating people helping them out when they're in need, but they're not really understanding the purpose of life in the same way. So what happens when you throw sin and the pastor starts to preach about what is wrong into that mix? How does that segment people out? If the moralist gets challenged because maybe he's uh, divorcing his wife and then he's no longer in good standing with the church, he's offended. He's like, how can you judge me like that? Right? So sin tends to separate the wheat from the chaff when you start talking about sin in church. But <clears throat> talking about sin in church is not something that um, tends to be very popular anymore, precisely because of this, because you can get everyone together believing the wrong things under the same roof unless you start talking about biblical beliefs that actually specifically go against uh, what they have to say. What about uh, catchphrases of expressive individualism that are allowed in the church. Abby, why don't you talk about uh, the one that uh, we talked about the other day? She believed she could. Um, so I was leading worship um, at a Bible study in Germany, and a volunteer said she would put words together for us. Great, sounds good. And so she picked a theme every every month, and the theme that you walk into Bible study looking at this one month was she believed she could, so she did. And I was like. Where do we find that in the Bible? And it, and I was like, hey, we need to take this down because that's not biblical. And she fought me on it so much because she believed she could. So she did. But she <laughs> did, didn't say she believed in God. So he did it. And it yeah. <laughs> um, and Pastor Scott, you were just talking in the last Wellspring you about uh, Christoplatonism, you know, the difference between the physical and the and the spiritual. So there's this belief when we see maybe an, an aging parent or a grandparent, we say, well, that's not grandpa anymore. Well, technically that assumes that all grandpa is, is grandpa's mind. And if grandpa's mind isn't fully functional, then it's not grandpa anymore. But I would say on the Christian view, grandpa's mind matters, mind you, that's a part of who he is, but also his body matters. So it's not simply the case that we can kill his body as soon as his mind seems to be slipping, right? But we kind of think that in the church. We, we separate the physical from the spiritual. Um, <clears throat> there was the idea of relitigating very clear teachings of Scripture but, and trying to pretend like they're not clear. But there are also things in Scripture that maybe are more debatable. Uh, you can think of topics. Well, I was listening to um, Mike Winger, who's a Bible teacher that I like, 
and he was going through this super long series, like 12 hours podcast series on women in ministry and everything the Bible had to say about. And he said, I'm going to go through what the Bible says here, and you can disagree with my interpretations. Please do. But please don't tell me you disagree because your feelings and your experience differs. That is not a valid reason to disagree with me. You have to disagree based on what the text actually says. Right? So we try to settle a lot of theological debates by, well, that's not my experience. Well, that, your experience doesn't matter. <laughs> so another one um, that I think has really sunk into the church. We talked about dream-based morality, the idea that you should follow your dreams, follow your heart. And in the culture, young people are being told that they should pick their career by what they're passionate about. They should follow their passion, and it's going to lead them to where they should go. It turns out that's really terrible career advice because most people are passionate about being rock and roll stars and hockey players. <laughs> and there's, there's a severe shortage of uh, openings and YouTube sensations, right? So most people can't be what they're passionate about. Um, there's a business world backlash to this. I really like the book, So Good They Can't Ignore You by Cal Newport. He talks about the difference between the passion hypothesis and the craftsman hypothesis. He's like, passion, of course, you just bounce around from job to job looking for what inspires you. But the craftsman hypothesis, you try a few things, you figure out what you have maybe some aptitude for, you get really good at it. When you get really good at it, you start to love your job because you're a craftsman now. You're very good at the thing you're doing. doesn't matter what it is, nursing or welding or um, you know, stock analysis. doesn't matter. If you get good at something and you have a little aptitude for it, you'll eventually like it. Well, within the church, I think we've taken this terrible secular career advice and we've given it to our young people. And the world says, follow your heart and it'll lead you to your, your career. And we tell young people, well, God's going to give you a special plan for your life. And he's going to tell you who to marry. And he's going to tell you what career to have. And how do you find it? You listen to inner voices and circumstances. And that's actually quite similar to what the world tells people, except we're just kind of, I would say we're sort of spiritualizing this advice. So now, now we're getting into theology of God's will. There's plenty of different uh, valid positions on this. I would say, I think we can be clear in Scripture that God has at least three different types of will. He has a sovereign will, the stuff that he's going to make work out no matter what. We don't know about that. Some of it's prophecy. That's just stuff God's going to take care of. God has a moral will. Right and wrong, that's clear. And then God occasionally does have an individual will. That's also pretty clear in Scripture because sometimes he'll tell people to do individual things. He'll be like, Abraham, I want you to leave her. Um, Noah, I want you to build a boat. That does happen. All those three things are definitely in Scripture, no dispute. The question is, how often does God have an individual will and does he have it? what things does he have it for and what things does he not? So Adam and Eve, when they're in the garden, if they asked God, what fruit should we have for dinner? God would probably have answered, do not eat of the forbidden fruit. He would not have told them whether they should have grapes or bananas because they had some freedom in that choice. But there was a moral constraint. They shouldn't eat of the forbidden fruit, right? So there's this, there's this question of, again, how, how do we know when God has an individual will? People can differ. In my view, God sometimes has an individual will and when he does, he makes it clear at the level of the miraculous. So when Noah was told to build a boat, which was God's individual will for his life, 
He didn't just see two ants on a stick floating down the stream and look at it and go, I think I should build a boat. <laughs> he got some pretty clear instructions from God. Even the classic still small voice that Elijah heard, if you read the text, it seems like it was actually either an audible voice or something very, very clear in Elijah's head at a minimum. And it's a hundred words and it's a by name prophecy. And it tells Elijah to go to this town and somebody's going to be waiting for him. And he's going to ask, it's like, this is God speaking falsifiably, verifiably. So I've seen young people, my generation and younger, so bogged down with sincerity, trying to find God's special will for their lives. Some of them spend a very long time not accomplishing anything because they're just waiting, uh, whether that's waiting for the right person to cross their path to marry, whether that's waiting for a job to have. Some of them I've seen leave the faith because they got so disenchanted by the fact that God didn't give them a special command for their life. And a lot of people just use that as a reason to never do anything hard for God because they didn't get special instructions from God to do that. So does God sometimes give people special instructions? Yes, we can discuss the parameters, but is it guaranteed to all believers? Absolutely not. Did I get a special message to go to Haiti and do something hard? No. Did I have a special sense of peace that I knew I was doing the right thing? No. <laughs> it was just hard. Did it work out in the end? Yeah, it did. And I saw God's sovereign hand at work as we sacrificially did something that we didn't feel like doing because we felt like it was a right thing to do. There's a difference between a right thing to do and saying this is the singular, I know it, right thing to do, right? And by the way, my mom And so we would have never become missionaries to anywhere because we never heard specifically from God. So I was introduced to this concept, because I, I was of the other view before, by actually a missionary uh, when I was in Europe. He gave me a book, Decision Making in the Will of God. I was stuck. I couldn't find anyone to marry because I needed God to send the right person into my path because that's how I would know it's from God. I read this book, which goes through every single verse in the Bible on the issue, and basically makes the claim that, Sometimes God has, it's just what I said, sometimes God has an individual will, but if he does, he'll tell you, and usually you have freedom. So once I read this book, I got on Christian Mingle. In 48 hours, I found my wife. We, we've been married very happily for seven years. Like it wasn't that hard, <laughs> but I was making it really hard. So I think even if you're of a little different school of thought, that's fine, but I think the older generation that, believe, that believes this they tend to be more grounded, and they don't take it to an unhealthy extreme. And I think even if you're, you're like, oh, no, I think you should wait for a voice from the Lord. Okay, cool. But you would agree that it can be taken to an extreme. The young people are taking it definitely to an extreme because they are more influenced by expressive individualism and less influenced by the church and the Bible and tradition and their family and all these other things. So I have counseled so many young people uh, I was talking to a college student who was just stuck trying to figure out choosing between two colleges kind of thing, standard decision. And she's like, I just want to do what God wants me to do. And I keep praying this verse, James 1, 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. And I said, Katie, that verse said God will give you wisdom. Wisdom is not the answer to your question. Wisdom is the ability to make a good decision. It's the difference between God giving you artistic talent 
and God giving you a canvas that's paint by numbers. There's, there's a difference. Now, sometimes God gives you a paint by numbers canvas. He did it. He told Paul to go into Macedonia with a dream. That happened. That was a thing. But that's the exception. It's not the rule. And usually, even when you read in the New Testament, the Christians say, you see phrases like, it seemed wise to us. And that's how they justify their decisions. The Bible talks a whole lot about wisdom. I think expressive individualism is getting kind of mixed up. Um, and even if you disagree, I think at least in the case of the young people who are taking this to a really unhealthy extreme, it's not working out very well. That's the last thing I have on how this is in the church. Quickly, what do we do with this information? Question to you, some application points. I've got a couple down that are, that are simple. What are the application points to you for all that we've talked about so far? Know God's word. Know God's word. The culture contradicts it, and you, you'll get... Somebody mentioned how you witness people. Yeah. I don't remember where the quote came from, but it was Satan can't create, so he imitates. To me, it seems like expressive individuals that are a false form of creation that God never putting individualism in place. Yeah. Once you build that foundation, everything else seems like a good idea. Seems like it makes sense. And in, in future lessons, we're going to talk about some of the things we've lost, are the collective and duty and hierarchy in the family. And I think we'll, we'll go there. As you, we rebuild those structures and make them healthy and strong and stable, we create a really good alternative. And then people in the world, when we ask them, how's it working out for you? because this good old-fashioned way is working out quite well for me, um, then that is a form of apologetic when we just live by God's truth and we stand out for doing so. Yeah. Paul. People that have this belief that men is inherently good, do they not watch the news? Or how, do they, <laughs> how do they justify that with their rules? Yeah. Well, I think it goes back to the idea that people can get messed up, but they get messed up by other people or society. Now, where did the original problems come from? Well, you can see, even back to Rousseau, arguing things that like private property or what messed us up. So they agree that people are messed up, but just not deep down inside. And that, that affects our whole view of criminal justice and all these things too. So, and we'll actually get into that next lesson. The number one takeaway that I have for you guys is teach your children and your grandchildren a Christian worldview. Teach them a Christian worldview. They're not getting a Christian worldview. When they watch Moana, they're being taught expressive individualism. When they watch the Muppets, they're being taught expressive individualism. When they go to school, probably half the time in Christian school too, they're bring, being taught expressive individualism. It's in the air, it's in the water, it's in the church. And there's no way they're going to survive this worldview if they're not inoculated against it with the truth. If they don't know these falsehoods by name, and they don't have the ability to counter them with God's truth. I'd highly recommend, uh, for anyone interested, a site called foundationworldview.com. They have a curriculum. They sell uh, different age ranges, but it's 4 to 14 is the range of their curriculum. And they're teaching these, these things uh, to kids. 
it's actually designed for parents who maybe have their kids in school, but they're teaching this to their kids uh, over the dinner table. So foundationworldview.com. Pastor Scott said this one, don't follow your heart, follow God's written word. Seek, seek wisdom in your decisions. If you get a voice from the Lord, awesome. If you don't, don't just trust your feelings. Don't spiritualize your feelings. Read God's word, study it, listen to the perspectives of wise people around you. Elders teach the younger, right? So we listen to the counsel of people who have more experience in the faith than us. We need to live in relationship with saints in part, so we can be challenged, so we don't fall prey to this worldview ourselves. We also need to live in relationship with sinners. Because they don't, that's, that's a big counter to this belief that you don't love me because you don't affirm what I think about myself. If they already know you love them, because you've been, you've been there for them when they needed you. Right? So we can prove our love in other ways. It's hard to just get on a platform or a you know, Facebook post debate with somebody, them say, you're, not, you're, you're saying I shouldn't exist. Hard to counter that unless you already have a relationship with them where they feel loved in a real way. I would say, live not by lies. And what I mean by that is our culture wants you to bow down to this philosophy. They want you to bow down to the golden idol. There is a communist dissident... Uh, so he fought against communism in the Czech Republic. His name was Vic, uh, Václav Havel. He tells a story of a, of a grocer in communist Czech that puts up a sign every morning in his shop that says, Workers of the World Unite. It's a communist slogan. The grocer is not really a communist. He doesn't really care about communism. He just wants to go along to get along. He doesn't want the authorities, who can be violent, to target him, so he puts his pronouns in his bio, right? He lives by lies. And the problem is, half the people around you might be living by lies. And it turns out that 40% of the people on this street don't like communism, or 90% of the people on this street don't like communism. But we're so worried that we all live by lies, and we say things we don't believe, and we just go along, and we don't ask questions. Um, Someone I, I respect said that in response to the pronouns question, he always, you know, why won't you call someone by their pronouns? He says, I refuse to participate in injustice. That's his response. He says it's, it's unjust to lie to somebody in the same way it would be unjust to lie to an anorexic about their status. Lying about somebody's gender is immoral and unjust, and I refuse to participate in injustice. So we should not live by lies.